Hello, and welcome to the Without Exception podcast. My name is Josiah Ott, and on this podcast, I seek to share practical content for everyday Christians. My hope is that I can help you live out your faith each day without exception. Welcome to episode 21 of Without Exception. Thank you for listening. Today, I'm going to be continuing the idea of becoming a Berean. I started this a few episodes ago, looking into the idea of searching the scripture for ourselves. The Jews from the region of Berea were commended in the book of Acts because they were willing to search out the scriptures to see if the things that Paul the Apostle was saying were actually true. And in the same way today, I believe that believers should be willing to study the scripture for themselves to establish truth. And so I last week, I really highlighted the importance of Bible reading, how we need to do it. And this week, I want to highlight uh, Bible translations and which one you could use or how to pick one, kind of the different translation philosophies behind them. I figured it would be remiss to not not overview this at all. I figured there's probably a handful of people that don't know a whole lot about where Bible translations come from as far as the process goes. And I don't want people just, you know, aiming in the dark. I figured I would do an episode to overview this and hopefully help you out. Now, before I get started, I have two resources I would like to recommend to anybody that wants to go a little bit deeper with this subject and the subject of hermeneutics, which we're going to be diving into shortly in the next few episodes, and also textual criticism, which has a huge, huge implication for the Bible that we have today, and the process where they sort various manuscripts and determine uh, which were the the oldest, which ones are the best, and which uh, edition we should be using today. And so these two books first is Grasping God's Word, by Duval and Hayes. It is a great book for hermeneutics, the idea of studying the Bible, and it actually begins chapter one, uh, overviews Bible translations, and much of the information from this podcast will be from that book, Um, and and then a lot of the hermeneutics stuff I'm going to share as well will be from that book. It's very, very beneficial. I had it as a textbook, I believe two or three years ago, I had a class on hermeneutics, and it was really, really good. It's a little over 400 pages. So it's a a big book. But if you want to go deeper into studying God's word, I highly recommend it. It's a phenomenal book. I won't be sharing specific quotes, or where I get stuff. I mean, the whole idea of Bible translations, it's pretty common knowledge. Um, So it's not just from them, you can find it elsewhere. I've also taken a few things from The other book, which is Textual Criticism of the Bible, that's by Amy Anderson and Wendy Witter, and that was a textbook for my current class, New Testament Issues and Apologetics. And so that's a very helpful book as well, and it dives into a little bit of translation philosophy as well and how we got the Greek New Testaments that we have today through the process of textual criticism, which is really important, and it's pretty cool. So as I said, I've referenced a little bit of information from both these books to get this podcast episode. I've also looked through a handful of English translations at the beginning. There's a preface in most English translations or an introduction, and you can get a little bit of an idea of the specific translation, the, um, the philosophy for translation they used, and also the committee or translators or, or whatever, you know, the group of people that put it together. And you can find that in the beginning. So I referenced that from a few Bible translations. And together, this is where I got the content for this podcast episode, through those two books, and then through some of these prefaces. 
And so I want to recommend those books to you. And so now we're going to get into some Bible translations and kind of getting the idea for where they come from and all this good stuff. So have you ever considered the idea that first God's word has gone on a journey in order to reach you? All of the books of the Bible were written roughly 2000 years ago at minimum, right? You know, they were written in in the first century, at least the New Testament was. Obviously, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament was much older than that. And God's preserved his word for thousands of years to get it to us today. But it's so much more that just meets the eye. God didn't just have this one perfect copy that somebody managed to find. And that's how we got it today. It's not at all how it happens. Uh, Again, the book Grasping God's Word on the 24th page has this great chart that kind of overviews this process. And I thought this was helpful. And they start with the divine author, which is obviously God, who communicates to a human author. That's step number two, where you have the Apostle Paul or one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They get this message from God. They have God's Word, and they write it down as the human author. This results in the third part, which is the original text, the actual, you know, the pen on the paper sort of idea from those original authors. Obviously, they probably didn't have regular pens, but you get the idea. They had the original text. And then none of the originals have survived to today. So the original was copied many, many times, and that is where we get the thousands of manuscripts that we have access to uh, today for the New Testament. So that's step number four is the copies. Number five is the critical text which is where textual criticism comes into play. They sort through thousands of manuscripts. No two are perfectly exactly alike. So which one's right? Well, or which one's better? So you you go and you you have to go through this process. I'm going to overview that in a few episodes. And that's the fifth step. So then they go and they result with a Greek New Testament. The um, Old Testament's a lot more agreed upon. There's not as many manuscripts and things of that nature. So the the New Testament is the one that really has a bit more of a debate behind it as far as the uh, vast amount of manuscripts that are available. And then they have to translate it, right? Then you have the translator or the committee that is translating. So that's step six. And then step seven, they result in the English translation. And then step eight, it comes to us, the modern readers. It goes to you. So it goes all the way from God as the author through the your actual writing to the to process of copying to identifying what copies are the best for the original language and then translating. So it's really, it's really a lot that it has got gone through in order to get to you, which is really amazing. And so obviously this episode, we're going to focus on translation, but I think it's important to realize that there's so many steps in order to get the Bible into our hands today and to really appreciate the fact that we have it. Uh, as, as we do. I mean, and the fact that we have choices, I mean, it's such an American thing to have choices about everything, right? And so we have so many different options for Bible translations. So which one do we pick? Well, there was a book I read a few years ago on studying the Bible. I think it's just called How to Study the Bible. I'm not sure. It's a, it's a tiny little book that had been given to us as students at Blue Ridge. And somewhere in that book, the author put forward this idea that the best Bible translation is the one that you will actually read and put into practice. And I thought that was a pretty cool idea. It stuck with me uh, for the most part. I think it's important also not to just have this philosophy, but to know why you like the translation you like, to understand the different options and you know why one is different from another. And so I think it's important not to just go and grab a random one off the shelf and say, this is good enough and go with it. I also would like to point out 
that they specifically say the best translation is the one you'll actually read. All right, so we don't want to get into things like paraphrases, specifically the Message Bible or the Amplified Bible or both paraphrases. They are not considered translations. I would not recommend uh, either of them for your primary reading at all. I'll dive into that a little bit more later, but I do agree with the general consensus that if there's a translation that you'll actually read, it's probably one of the best ones, as long as it's one that is reliable. So I'm not going to cover every English translation out there. There's too many to count, but I'm going to go over a couple popular ones and go over the different translation philosophies and kind of how we got them as we have them today. Now you can, as I said at the beginning, you can generally find a lot of information about the specific Bible translation you have, especially if it's paper, uh, in the preface or the introduction at the beginning. It'll go through the translation philosophy. It'll share uh, generally which version of the Greek New Testament is used uh, in the translation and also uh, the committee or the members, the translators, the group of people that did it. It'll give you a really good overview. So if you're like, I, I like this translation that Josiah doesn't mention in this episode, that's cool. Uh, you can just go ahead and dive in and find it for yourself. It'll tell you what it is. Now, for me, I am a big time fan of the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you did not catch the very first episode of this podcast, I think I at least briefly overviewed that everything I share on the podcast is ESV. It's my primary Bible. It's the Bible I read every day. It's the Bible I do most of my uh, preaching to at least to adults with. Um, I do use the NLT, the New Living Translation, a lot for preaching to young people. So in youth ministry, I would say 99% of the stuff I do is NLT. But outside of that specific context, pretty much everything else for me is the ESV. And the funny thing is, these two are basically polar opposites as far as still being good and reliable and ones that are reasonable to use. They're on opposite ends. Of the spectrum. So we'll dive in here to some translation philosophies. There's basically two main approaches to translating the Bible uh, as we have it today. The first is word for word translations. They're literal, they're also called formal equivalent translations. So basically, they take the individual words in the Greek or the Hebrew and they translate them directly into our language. They try to keep them in the same order. They try to keep the grammar in so many different features like this as much uh, as possible in alignment with the original language. But the second approach is known as thought for thought, which is also called dynamic equivalent uh, translation. And it's basically where they try to share the gist of the passage. And then obviously we also have the paraphrase, which is the message and the amplified and one of the problems with them is it's such significant changes, it really cannot be considered a translation. It's so far from the original, it's so much extra stuff, and it's just not it's it's not a good good translation because it's not a translation. It's not in alignment with the original text. It's you know, they rearrange stuff significantly, they kind of throw their own spin on things, throw some words in. I know the amplified a lot of times it'll throw in 10 different renderings of an English word, like almost like you're opening a thesaurus, and it's really not accurate to what um, what you should be reading and what the original authors intended, I'm sure. 
So you can look at these basically on a spectrum. So all the way to the left of the spectrum is how they normally illustrate it. You have a highly literal, you have a word for word translation. And then all the way on the right, you have a thought for thought translation. Uh, the paraphrase is kind of falling off the edge of the spectrum on the far right. And so there, there's this range, there's a spectrum between the two. And it's also important beyond this, so that's the philosophies of translation. It's also important beyond this to acknowledge that some translations are done by groups of people, by huge committees, while others are done by individuals. Now, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, it is best to err on the side of translations that were done by larger groups of people, especially ones from multiple denominations, multiple backgrounds. Um, I know the, the NIV, they consulted is the word I'm looking for. They consulted a lot of people from different nations even. That's where the international version comes from. They went through not only different different uh, denominations, different belief systems. I mean, obviously all Christian, but they went to different countries to kind of get as best they can something that would fit everybody. I know the NLT and the ESV were both done by large groups. That's part of the reason why I like them. The ESV specifically, they had a committee of over 100 people that worked together in order to create this translation. So when you have a larger group of people, it's less likely to reflect the biases or the theological beliefs of only one or two people, which, you know, if they have a stance that's really contrary to scripture or pretty loose in a certain area, they might kind of fudge that translation, you know, that that verse or that section. And so that's something that can be kind of dangerous. But first, to go into a little bit more uh, detail, the word-for-word translations are basically committed to following the structure of the original language, the exact words, as best as we can. Obviously, there's not always a perfect equivalent in our modern translations. It doesn't always work out that way. And there's sometimes where the, if they followed everything 110% perfectly, literally, it just wouldn't make any sense. So sometimes they have to make some slight adjustments in order for it to actually be readable. But overall, they follow a very, very literal uh, ren rendering as much as possible. Uh, one danger with the very literal translations is in the way they would do things word for word is sometimes it can lead to some misunderstandings um, because of the way they say things. Uh, as a small example from the ESV, something that happens quite a bit is they might say something along the lines of, and not a few people were saved. Like in the book of Acts, they might say something like that. Or there was no small dispute among them, something like that. You know, I didn't find a specific verse. I should have, but that's kind of what they say. And so you can look at this and you're like, well, not a few people got saved. So you could look at this two different ways. You could be like, well, like not even one person got saved, like zero people got saved. Not even a couple people got saved. It was terrible. Like nothing happened. Or you could say not a few well, what's not a few mean? It means a lot. It's like not a few people, a lot of people got saved. And so generally in the ESV, you find that when it says not a few or no small, and it kind of has this negative um, connotation, it actually means something big. So if it says not a few people got saved, it means that there was a lot of people that got saved. If there was no small dispute, it means that there was a dispute. All right. You know, it's, it's, so you kind of got to you, you learn um, how these different things go, how they flow together, and you learn like, okay, this is what this means. And so it helps you down the road, but initially it can be a little bit harder at times to understand. But the thing I like about the word-for-word -word translations is they're committed to the Bible being the word of God, not just the thoughts of God, not just the ideas of God. And as best they can, they try to preserve the actual words that God would have said. 
and is uh, best they can. They aim for excellency. They aim to be as accurate as they possibly could. And that's something that I really appreciate. I really like that they take that approach and render it as close to what God originally would have said as we possibly can in our modern day language. Second one, obviously, is thought for thought. Uh, some big translations here are the NIV and the NLT, and they uh, they aim overall for an equivalent message. The NIV preface puts it this way. It says they try to recreate as far as possible the experience of the original audience. So this is a bit subjective, and that's the one danger that can occur with thought for thought translations is basically it requires somebody to interpret, well, what is the thought or idea from this passage? And if they're wrong on it, then they can articulate something wrong, and then it comes into our translation that way. Obviously, that's um, there's pretty slim chances of that happening, but it could still happen. So that's one uh, potential danger. That's why you definitely want to aim for the thought-for-thought thought translations that are done by committees of people throughout multiple denominations, um, especially throughout the world. It really is helpful. And again, as I said earlier, I want to encourage you to avoid using the Message Bible or the Amplified Bible, especially the Message Bible. I'm really, really not a fan. I try not to target stuff, but the Message Bible, it's it's so loose, um, and it's, a, it's obviously a paraphrase. He goes and really throws his own turn on a lot of things. And, it, you know, there's some areas that can be kind of fun. It can be really helpful. But there's enough areas that are really not ideal that it's really not worth using. And the other thing with the Message Bible is it was done by one person. There was one guy named Eugene Peterson, and he was the one that did the majority of it. I'm sure that there's probably some sort of editor, but overall it was the work of one man. And it was very, very much thought for thought, you know, trying to to put it in his own words. And so it's kind of funny because a paraphrase is, is putting something in your own words. And I don't want to take God's words and put them in my own words. Like that just doesn't even make sense as far as it being a Bible. So when you go and you start diving into this, um, I think it's very important to aim for word for word. If you're doing in-depth study for sure, a lot of people like to use thought for thought for preaching um, because it's really easy to read. It doesn't require as much time to process. But if you're doing deep study, uh, the thought, the uh, word for word way to go is is really, really going to be helpful. And I like, like it for preaching as well. I think it's good, especially if you're going to actually dive into specific words and really break down smaller passages. Uh, currently with our youth group, we're going through the book of Acts and the book of Acts. We're trying to do it in like 14 weeks. So there's some sections we're really flying through. It's not some super, super deep exegesis of small passages. And so because we're covering so much ground um, and not with not as much depth, a thought for thought translation is really perfect in that situation. And it's also helpful to look through uh, multiple translations if you can, whenever you're reading. I know this is something a lot of people do, especially if you're struggling with a passage. I think it's really good to read it in both word-for-word -word and thought-for-thought -thought translations. For me, recently, a couple I've been using um, is a combination of the Lexham English Bible, the LEB, the English Standard Version, which is my favorite, the ESV, uh, the NLT, the New Living Translation, again, is the one I use for the youth group, and the NIV. So when I've been reading something lately, a lot of times if I'm getting ready to preach, I try to read something in multiple translations all the way through. So I get the viewpoint from all these different things. And it helps you as well when you realize that somebody might be looking at it differently. 
And so those are the four I choose for when I, I'm doing some comparing and contrasting because it's two word-for-word -word translations and two thought-for-thought -thought translations. And if you don't already uh, use the Version Bible app, the Version Bible app has an awesome, awesome feature. It's the compare tool. So if you're, if you're into doing this where you're like, I'm reading and you hit a verse and you're like, I don't really know what this verse is, means. I'm struggling to, to understand. Well, if you click on it in the Version Bible app, it opens up like a tray. And I think it's a third thing to the right. Like you can highlight it, you can share, you can create a verse image, but then there's a compare feature. And so if you hit that, it allows you to compare the verses that you have selected with um, within multiple translations. And it's your preferred translations. So you get to set and you say, hey, these are the five translations I love. And so it'll say, cool, I'm going to pump these five translations out for you here real quick. And you can see them all side by side. So if you don't already use that, I highly, highly recommend it. And last, I want to just briefly state um, why I don't use the King James Version. So for the King James, it follows a word-for-word uh, -word philosophy, very, very similar uh, translation philosophy to the ESV. The ESV actually kind of backs what the King James originally did. So there's nothing wrong with the King James Bible. However, uh, because it was, you know, it came out, the authorized version in 1611, they were doing the best they can with what they had. And so the main reason that a lot of people don't like the King James Version now, aside from the um, out outdated language and the, the, it's not really in our vernacular anymore, is the fact that it was actually translated off of newer manuscripts than the newest translations are. And you might say, that's crazy. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That seems so backwards. Well, what happened is, you know, archaeological digs and evidence has shown that there was a lot more manuscripts out there than they originally realized. And so I believe the King James, when it was originally translated, most of the manuscripts dated to, I think it was like the 7th or 8th centuries, um, obviously after after Jesus was here. Uh, maybe it was even the 9th, I can't remember, but it was it was pretty far removed. And so it was the best they had at the time, though, you know, and it worked, and it's worked for hundreds of years, and I'm sure a lot of people came to Christ through it, but better is here now. So since then, they have found numerous manuscripts from the second century, even uh, even more from the third century. But you, if you consider the second century was less than a hundred years after the stuff was written. So it was pretty soon after. And so obviously those being, you know, six, 700 years, whatever, older, um, they're going to be closer to the originals. So when there's a discrepancy between the two, uh, it obviously would make sense to go with the one that was so much closer in date. But when they translated the King James, they did not have it at the time. So that's the main reason that you might see different verses that are no longer um, no longer in the Bible because they were in the King James, but it, there's there's this different thing. And so they're not actually, it's not like a weird conspiracy thing where they're omitting, they're, they're slowly eroding away at the Bible by taking out these important verses. That's not at all what it is. Um, and again, the process of textual criticism, it goes through and, and it sifts through these various manuscripts and sorts out the differences and determines which ones are the oldest. And I'm going to get into that in a few episodes. Um, but there's there's a really a science behind it, and it really makes a lot of sense. And you can see that a lot of times stuff that was is has been omitted in the modern translations was most likely actually added by older manuscripts and or by newer manuscripts. Um, that the King James would have used. It's kind of confusing when you get the old and the new kind of backwards in this. 
but you can you can see how it was done. A lot of times it was an accident and it's pretty easy to sort through. Um, they got a whole process for it. I'm going to dive into that in a few episodes. But that's the main reason. And then obviously it's not really in our vernacular. So there's no really no need to use the King James Version when it's not super easy to understand and it's not really the most accurate translation we have. I mean, it's plenty good enough. I'm not going to say it's bad, but I have no reason to use it when there's something much better out there. As I said, the ESV follows the the King James approach to translation, follows the general philosophy there. And if you think when they did the King James, they did the best they could at the time they ha- you know they had and they wanted to give the best. So I would assume that the people that actually went through and did that translation, if they were here today, would be like, yeah, absolutely. Use the best, use the the thing that you're going to actually understand. Like that that was their goal anyways. And so it's just a little bit there. Again, I'm going to highlight that a little bit more when we get to textual criticism and go into some specific examples. But overall, I just wanted to encourage you guys with this episode on choosing a translation and not just doing it haphazardly, having a reason for it. Again, um, so good word-for-word translations are the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard uh, Version, the King James uh, Version. They're all word-for-word. The Lexham English Bible is word-for-word. They're all good. And Thought for Thought, DNIV, NLT are two of the most popular. So they're all going to be beneficial if you can actually read them and understand them. But there, you should have an idea for why you use what you use. And that's really what I wanted to accomplish in this episode is to encourage you guys to actually look into it for yourself. If you have a Bible uh, translation that you typically use, well, why do you use it? You know, like look into it. I don't want you just guesstimating and saying, well, I just kind of, this kind of happened and I'm just going through and it it's good enough. I'd like you to know the, the philosophy that your translation used for translating, how many people were involved, the process behind it, you know, some things like that. And then from there, you can go ahead and say, hey, this is great. I love it. And now I know why I love it. Or you could go and say, maybe there's something that could be a little bit better. Maybe for devotional reading, you want to use something like the NLT. But for serious in-depth study, you want to use something like the ESV. You can kind of mix it up. But I just want to encourage you to know why you use what you use. And so with that, I thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Without Exception podcast. I pray that this episode has been edifying to you and that it is something you can put into practice in your own life. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with others. If you were listening on Apple, I would love it if you would leave a review. It helps with the exposure of the show. That said, I pray you have an awesome week. And until I see you next time, let's live out our faith each day without exception.